let's pray as we prepare to open God's word this morning. Father in heaven, in your word, you are concerned that we renew our minds in Christ Jesus, that we have the mind of Christ. And Lord, one of the major reasons for that is that the mind of Christ is so radically different than the mind of the world, the mind of the culture. Lord God, I pray that as we open the word together this morning, that you would use this time as just a baby step, a small step in this process of further renewing our minds, helping us to see what kingdom values are in the midst of a culture that increasingly is saying otherwise. So we pray your help now. We pray that this time would bring glory to your name and benefit to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Colossian believers to walk in Christ, being rooted and built up in Christ, and being established in the faith, and to do all of it in abounding thanksgiving. That is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and I think that's an excellent little concise summary of how followers of Jesus Christ are to spend their days on this earth. We are to walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. But friends, what follows immediately on the heels of those two verses is verse 8, where suddenly Paul turns to issue a warning, where he proceeds now to caution us against what really is the opposite of walking rootedly in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 8, see to it, he's talking to the church, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, let's think about this verse for just a minute. The words that are up front in the verse, those words, see to it, those words have the flavor of be careful, beware, be on your guard. Paul wants us Christians to do what? To proactively and to purposely beware. He wants us to actively be on our guard, to have our radar up and working, lest anyone take us captive, lest anyone gain control over us or seduce us by means of what Paul calls here philosophy and empty deceit. 
I think Christopher Seitz has captured the Greek very well here when he translates like this, see to it that no one takes you captive by vain and deceptive philosophy. Vain and deceptive philosophy. It's clear in the Greek text that the philosophy that Paul is talking about here is itself vain and deceptive. See to it that no one takes you captive by vain and deceptive philosophy. Now, what is a deceptive philosophy? A deceptive philosophy would be a philosophy that promises one thing, but deceptively leads to another. A deceptive philosophy is a philosophy that is misleading and seductive. The serpent promised one thing to Adam and Eve and led them astray by that promise. Adam and Eve were caught up in the serpent's deceptive philosophy and they came to ruin by it. Well, the deceptive philosophy that Paul has in mind here is further described in the verse as being, listen, according to human tradition, human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That is, the empty and deceptive philosophy that Paul is warning against here has a human, worldly, flavor about it. It has a godless flavor about it. It is not according to Christ. The deceptive philosophy that Paul is outlining here tends to lead people away from Christ. It tends not to conform with the teaching of Jesus Christ. People of Snowden Baptist Church and to all believers who are listening to this service online, you are exhorted here by God in his word to see to it that no one takes you captive by vain and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, believer in Jesus, you have, in fact, a God-mandated responsibility to be wary, listen, to be wary of the assumptions of the human cultural scene, to be wary of societal lies that in the end turn out to ring dissonant with God and with his word. And I want you to listen very carefully. There is currently a philosophy, currently a worldview which threatens to overtake Western culture 
And it fits the description of Colossians 2, verse 8. This new worldview is deceptive, it is worldly, it is godless, and I might add, it is incredibly prevalent, like a tidal wave. Scott David Allen has called this particular worldview a cultural acid. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay have called it corrosive. Rod Dreher has labeled it as nothing less than soft totalitarianism. And further, many have rightly, rightly, called this particular worldview a new religion, a postmodern faith. But note very well, it is a faith that shuts God and his word out of the picture. People like Vody Baucom and Joshua Mitchell and many others have written extensively on this, how, how this deceptive philosophy that is sweeping the Western world is really nothing less than a new religion. A religion which very curiously borrows categories from Christianity, but fills those categories with its own pernicious content. What is this deceptive philosophy, this worldly worldview that is so strong in our world today and that has arisen with startling speed? Well, in recent literature, this worldview has been given a few names. Vody Baucom prefers to call it uh, critical social justice. Scott David Allen prefers to call it ideological social justice. Joshua Mitchell just refers to it as identity politics. And Thad Williams calls it social justice B, in contrast to social justice A, which Williams calls biblically compatible social justice seeking. There is a vast difference between social justice A, which is biblically compatible justice, and social justice B, which is ideological social justice. See, of course, of course, hear me well, of course, there is most definitely a call to us as Christians from our Lord to seek justice. Micah 6.8, do justice. Our God himself is described as upright and just. The scripture says that all his ways are just. We know from reading scripture that God detests injustice. That God holds oppressors accountable. That God's heart is tender toward victims. 
and that we ourselves as kingdom people are called to seek justice according to the pattern that God lays out in Scripture. And of course, of course, of course, as Christian believers, we would never deny that racism exists in our world. That the ugly operation of racism can be found in a variety of places. We would never deny that. We would never deny that we as Christian people have a duty to combat racism. Of course we do. But what we must reject as people of the kingdom of Jesus Christ are the methods and the presuppositions and the strategies and the attitudes and the plans and the goals of this deceptive philosophy that we are outlining this morning, the deceptive philosophy known as ideological social justice. We must reject the worldview of ideological social justice. Ideological social justice is a very different thing than biblical justice. It works on very different premises. And I hope as weeks go forward in this short sermon series that many of the vast differences between ideological social justice and its worldview, the differences between that and the Christian worldview, will become clearer to us. Believers in Jesus Christ, I am pleading with you this morning, standing under the word of God, that you see to it that no one takes you captive by vain and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, what I want to do with the remainder of our time today is a few things. First, I want to map out a brief history for you, brief history, of where the deceptive philosophy of ideological social justice came from, its origins. After that, I want to give you a basic working definition of this philosophy, this worldview. Third, I want to talk about several of the characteristics of this deceptive philosophy so that as believers we might be more attuned to spot it and to take our thoughts captive to Christ. And then finally, I want to move to a little application of our verse of Colossians 2.8. So first, a brief history, are you ready? A brief history of the rise of ideological social justice this is admittedly a highly selective history for the sake of time, but the four historical figures that I will mention here have each played major roles in shaping the cultural moment in which we now find ourselves. 
The first of these people is Jean-Jacques, I have to get that right, Jean-Jacques, I'm in Montreal, I should get that right, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century Genevan philosopher. Among other things and other ideas, Rousseau promoted the idea that the surrounding society is to be blamed for corrupting people. For Rousseau, the problem is out there. It's society's fault. Rousseau argued that the individual person is intrinsically good. That there is no original perversity in the human heart. And of course, this teaching of Rousseau was in stark contrast with what Augustine had taught centuries earlier. For Rousseau, whose philosophy has been very influential in the Western world, for him, it's the institutions of society that are the culprit for human problems. Well, at this point, I ask you, do these nearly 300-year-old ideas from Rousseau, do they sound eerily familiar? The second major figure that I'll mention here who has turned out to be a major shaper of the current ideological social justice philosophy is the German thinker Karl Marx, who was born 40 years after Rousseau died. Scott David Allen well summarizes, I think, well summarizes the basic worldview of Marx when he says this, quote, Marx's worldview is built on the notion that the world can be divided into two basic categories, evil oppressors and innocent victims. Yes, Marx saw all of human life as a struggle for power. He viewed history as nothing more than the history of human beings struggling for power. And for Marx, the oppressors, for him, the economic oppressors, needed to be overthrown by a class war. A class war which was, in his thinking, inevitable in which the have-nots and the haves would battle it out, finally creating, in the end, a man-centered, godless utopia where a classless society would prevail and the state would be done away with. Of course, when we talk about the foundations of communism, we're talking about the ideas of Karl Marx. But I ask you, who you, you and I who live in 2021, I ask you if Marx's basic outlook, his basic outlook, viewing the entire human scene as a struggle for power, viewing humanity in the black and white categories of 
oppressor and victim. Does this perspective sound familiar to you in terms of the current scene? Well, from Karl Marx, we go next to Friedrich Nietzsche, another German philosopher whose life overlapped, in fact, with Karl Marx. We should point out here in passing that there is a verified connection between the writings of Nietzsche and the ideas that were later adopted by the Nazi party in Germany. Nietzsche is perhaps most famous for his God is dead statement. But for our purposes, as we are tracking a basic historical trajectory to the current ideological social justice, Nietzsche is important because he promoted a distrust, distrust in traditional authorities, traditional institutions, and he also promoted the idea that the purpose of life is one's own psychological well-being. Like Marx, Nietzsche also gave credence to the idea that history is just a story of oppressors and victims. Friedrich Nietzsche. And then fourth and finally, the last person that we'll mention here in brief is Herbert Marcuse, a 20th century German-American thinker who was a next-generation Marxist theorist. Marcuse, along with others, was part of what's called the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School. And the ideas of the Frankfurt School took deep root in university humanities programs throughout the Western world. Critical social theory is attributed to Marcuse and the neo-Marxist, neo-Marxist Freudian Frankfurt School. But you see, where Marx had seen the class struggle to be centered in economic concerns, Marcuse and the Frankfurt School expanded the framework and promoted the idea that the struggle and the inequality was between ethnic groups, sexes, and genders. And Marcuse wasn't interested merely in gaining equality between groups. That wasn't his interest. It went further than that. Marcuse wanted there to be nothing less than a reversal of power, a reversal of power between groups. Marcuse and his ilk, who, by the way, many of them dabbled in the occult, we should note that, Marcuse and his ilk promoted a new Marxist revolution, but instead of economics being the focal point, now race, gender, and sexual orientation became the focal point. So in sum, from Rousseau comes the idea that society and its institutions are to blame for our problems. From Marx comes the idea that we are to look at the world through the viewfinder 
of oppressors, victims, and power struggle. From Nietzsche comes a distrust of institutions and a primary value on personal psychological well-being. And from Herbert Marcuse and Max Horkheimer and the Frankfurt School comes the Marxist Freudian idea of critical social theory, where now the power struggle involves race, gender, and sexual identity. All of it, plus the ideas of many others who we haven't mentioned this morning, all of it has served to shape what today is ideological social justice. And here's how Scott David Allen describes it. Here's the working definition. Allen here is focusing largely in this definition on the program of ideological social justice, what it wants to do. And he says, ideological social justice is the tearing down of traditional structures and systems deemed to be oppressive and the redistribution of power and resources from oppressors to victims in pursuit of equality of outcome. Close quote. Again, the influential, increasingly popular, neo-Marxist, deceptive philosophy of our day has to do with people tearing down traditional structures and systems deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to victims in pursuit of equality of outcome. What I want you to notice here is how God is left out, forced out of the picture in this worldview. Note how we, as human beings, are to assume under this definition that we have the ability to sort out in tidy fashion who the oppressor is and who the victim is and how penance has to be done. Notice how simplistic and how naive and how arrogant this worldview is. Humility is nowhere in the picture here. Now, this corrosive worldview that we're describing, it began to incubate in Western universities in the 1960s and 70s. But it then grew up and it spread its wings outside the universities into the wider society as graduates from those universities took positions in government, in business, in media, in education, in journalism, etc. 
The ideas of ideological social justice have crept from the university campuses into the very fabric of our culture and they are becoming embedded there and entrenched there. As the essayist Andrew Sullivan has observed, I think it's a good observation, he says, we all live on campus now. And even more alarming to many of us is how ideological social justice has made inroads into evangelicalism and how it is currently exercising its divisive nature within the church of Jesus Christ. As Vody Balcom has stressed, the church must be awake and aware. See to it that no one takes you captive. Awake and aware concerning the spread of ideological social justice so that we don't fall victim to it, as so many around us in the evangelical world are currently. Scott David Allen has also issued a timely caution to the church when he writes this, quote, if the yeast of ideological social justice continues to shape evangelical practice and theology, the church will be greatly hindered at a time when the culture desperately needs to see true biblical justice advocated and lived out. Close quote. Well, friends, hence the reason for us doing this sermon series. See to it that no one takes you captive by vain and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, there are many things about this corrosive ideological social justice worldview that I want you to consider with me. There are many characteristics and features that come attached to the package that surround the worldview. Let's take time here to catalog just some of them, and we'll do more of this next Sunday, Lord willing. Where personal identity is concerned... Ideological social justice focus, focuses exclusively on groups, not on individuals. It's the group you belong to, based on your race, your sexual orientation, or your gender. That is the thing. Your own individual personal history, your own unique experiences in life, your own dearly held beliefs and convictions, none of that matters. It's whether you are in the white group, the black group, the indigenous group, the heterosexual group, the LGBTQ group, the male group, the female group, etc. It's your group that matters. Under ideological social justice, your identity is always a group identity 
never an individual identity. And groups are looked at in a monovalent, monolithic way. In other words, according to the worldview, groups contain only one kind of person. And within those groups, it is predetermined in ideological social justice who the transgressors are and who the innocent people are. Ideological social justice presumes to decide decisively and irrefutably who the oppressors are and who the oppressed are. It draws what it considers a clean line between groups. Right now in our cultural moment in 2021, people who exist in my group, that is, white heterosexual males, no matter our experiences as individuals, no matter our individual beliefs, no matter how we actually carry out our lives, we heterosexual white males, simply because we are heterosexual white males, have been deemed the oppressors, the unforgivable transgressors, the undesirables. And according to the ideology, that fact is absolutely irrefutable and inescapable. The discussion is closed. It has been decreed. Ideological social justice cleanly divides society into an oppressor group and oppressed groups. And if you dare question the doctrine, you will be told that you are most certainly on the side of the oppressors. And personally, in my case, as a white male, I will be accused of racism, white supremacy, white privilege, white complicity, white fragility. It's either you accept the rules of critical social theory or you are demonized. If you raise questions about the decided upon tenets of ideological social justice, you will be canceled. And a whole wave of internet archeology span will be conducted against you. People will dig for further violations, further missteps that you may have taken, even if they happened 20 years ago. And that's really a huge irony in this whole thing, is it not? The irony is this, that as much as ideological social justice advocates want to point at the evils of the power that they find on the side of those who they have declared to be the oppressors, as much as they want to do that, they themselves pursue power and they use all sorts of power tactics as they shame people who hold to contrary views, as they deplatform people who hold opposing views, as they bully people and threaten people with opposing views. Rod Dreher puts it like this, he says, quote, social justice progressives advance their malignant concept of justice in part by terrorizing dissenters 
as thoroughly as any inquisitor on the hunt for enemies of religious orthodoxy. Ideological social justice is so often marked by a lack of mercy. It is so often characterized by a lack of forgiveness, a lack of grace, a disinterest in reconciliation. Ideological social justice prefers to traffic in grievance and in retribution and in divisiveness and in outrage, resentment, silencing, humiliating its opponents. It tends to be touchy and it tends to be arrogant and it regularly, regularly engages in caricatures and it is marked by a lack of charity. Ideological social justice regularly assumes the worst and it tends to see matters in black and white. There is a lack of nuance in ideological social justice and it tends to rush to judgment. Ideological social justice is lacking in tolerance and abounding in self-assigned moral superiority. And it's worth pointing out here that the deceptive philosophy that we have been describing this morning is not simply, I want you to listen, not simply limited to people on the left side of the ideological spectrum. It does apply to the right side as well. People on the right are not immune from playing the same identity politics game. People on the right can likewise view themselves as victims, as scapegoats of those on the left that they perceive as oppressors. People on the right side of the spectrum are certainly not immune to the same self-righteous identity politics game. And I would say the reason for that is, in scripture, all of us are sinners born into the condition of sin. Ideological social justice takes a dismal view of persons. A dismal view of persons. As Douglas Murray has noted, ideological, ideological social justice turns every, listen to this, every human relationship into a political power calibration. Yes, indeed. Th these days, more and more people are almost automatically looking at one another simply in terms of the now canonized cultural categories. What a sickly, reductive way to view human persons. Ideological social justice is obsessed with power dynamics. It views the entire world through the prism of power and oppression and essentially ignores things like love and forgiveness. 
ideological social justice automatically labels that those it perceives as holding power to be bad in a moral sense, in a moral sense, while those it perceives as oppressed victims are deemed to be morally good. Ideological social justice tends to be utterly sure of itself and lacking in humility. Ideological social justice also tends to be historically arrogant. It tends to take a self-righteous purge mentality as it wants to tear down the past. Scott David Allen writes this, gratitude and humility toward the past is completely absent from adherence of ideological social justice. Close quote. Taking its cues from Rousseau, ideological social justice has a misguided view of the location of evil. It views evil as out there. Evil is in society. Evil is not in every individual, no matter who they are. It's out there, says the worldview. This pernicious worldview says that evil is to be located in oppressive social structures and systems. It's not located in every human heart. It's out there in the systems and the institutions that we have to tear down. And in doing that, it drastically minimizes personal responsibility because it blames problems on others out there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian dissident who refused to live by the lies of the Soviet communists and was subsequently said to a forced labor camp to the Gulag for eight years and later exiled, Solzhenitsyn wrote famously and very truthfully about how, quoting him, the line, listen, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Friends, the truth is this, that evil is in every single one of us, no matter our skin color, no matter our gender, no matter the identity that we affix to ourselves, every one of us as human beings, we are born into a condition called sin and we are sinners. As individuals, we are all prone to evil and prone to playing the part of the oppressor. But ideological social justice denies this. Church of Jesus Christ, the call that is being issued to us today from King Jesus is the call to see to it that no one takes us captive by vain and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, having attempted to describe 
many of the contours of this deceptive philosophy called ideological social justice, we turn finally to some application for us as kingdom people. I'm talking to kingdom people now. Application for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And in the main, the application for us here today is to take every thought captive to Christ. As born again, enlivened believers in Jesus Christ, as his church, we live, I want you to listen, we live under a very different set of values and assumptions than ideological social justice does. For example, as we've already alluded to it this morning, we live under the truth that every single person, no matter how much melanin in their skin, no matter their gender, no matter their sexual preferences, no matter their background, no matter their experiences, every single person is a sinner before God, prone to evil, in need of the redemption that only comes through the shed blood of Jesus of Nazareth. And we believe a rather scandalous truth. Are you ready for it? Namely, that Jesus went to the cross both for those who have been victimized and for perpetrators of oppression. That in Paul's words, the blood of Jesus justifies the ungodly. And each and every human being falls into that all-encompassing category of ungodly. As kingdom people, we believe that the only merit that matters ultimately for any human being is the imputed merit of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And as kingdom people, we see our identity not in terms of skin color or sexual preference or gender or politics, but we see our identity in terms of being in Christ. It's his performance and not ours that is the deciding factor in our identity as believers. As Neil Shenvey puts it, quote, a Christian's primary identity is not in their race, class, or gender. It is in their union with Christ. To see our brothers and sisters as oppressors solely because of their demographic group is to re-erect the dividing wall of hostility that Christ tore down, Ephesians 2.14. Yes, and of course none of this is to minimize the fact that racism does exist today, that there has been a horrible history of racism in the Western world and other parts of the world, but it is to say that when our identity as Christians, where that is concerned, our identity first is in Christ. And indeed, as believers, we look at every human being 
not in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, but rather in terms of being made in the image of God. That's the thing. Human beings are image bearers, and then that means that each one of us as a human being has a sacred dignity. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we reject ideological social justice's goal of tearing down society. Instead, our aim as believers is the betterment and the healing of a broken world through service, through forgiveness, through personal responsibility, through love for enemies, through working for biblical justice, and through personal accountability. And we do it all with the assurance, with the blessed assurance that one day, who is going to renew our broken world? Is it going to be us? It'll be God. It'll be God. My Christian brothers and sisters, I am pleading with you this morning for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of his church, for the sake of a broken world, for the sake of your neighbor, see to it that no one takes you captive by vain and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Live in union with the crucified risen Jesus. Renew your mind in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Know the word of Christ. Treasure Jesus Christ. Do as he asks. Live as he commands. He is our king. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we live in a time where, like Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent's suggestions are so powerful. They, they contain a grain of truth. And we confess and admit that it is so easy for us, even as people who have been believers, for so many years, it is so easy for us to be led astray, led adrift by the powerful suggestions of the culture and the world. Lord God, I pray for everyone watching, for our people at Snowden, that you would do a new work in us of renewing our mind in Christ, turning off social media, the news, YouTube, whatever it is, and getting into the word, not out of a sense of duty, but because we treasure you and renewing our mind hour by hour, day by day in Christ Jesus. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.